On this episode of Athletic Training Chat, we have Julie Stamm, who is a PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and actually a former classmate of mine. Um, in this episode, we talk about concussion, but specifically around youth athletes. Uh, Julie has a book coming out this summer. Uh, this was recorded uh, in January, releasing it now in February. I believe she said she, her hope is for it to come out in July. We referenced that in this. We'll have that linked up, so please make sure to check that out. But really, we talk a lot about what her research is, how she's kind of come to focus on that, and then really just a lot about concussion and not so much the colossal big collision that you see but those repetitive little hits that eventually add up and how those different things can add different trauma to the brain and ultimately cause some of the issues we might see later down the line uh, really really interesting discussion when it comes to this answered a potential question I could have in the future for my kids playing contact sports as always we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine please check them out for any of your bracing taping kit needs uh, they've got pretty much everything you need and are always willing to take ideas and some feedback without further ado please enjoy this episode episode of Athletic Training Chat. We are on with Dr. Julie Stamm, who is a professor at UW-Madison and a former student athletic trainer um, with me at the same time back back in the good old days uh, in Madison. Uh, reliving those days, yes. Uh, but this episode, we are going to be talking about um, concussion, uh, specifically um, just around youth and the brain. Um, Julie's been doing a ton of work with that. Um, I won't get into too much of that because that's what we're talking about, but just some of the different things and with a book coming out relatively in the near future after people are listening to this one, but I will let you get to all that later too, but I will stop rambling and turn it over to you to fill in a little bit more on your background and kind of how you are where you are right now. Yeah, so um, as you said, we are proud alumni of the uh, UW-Madison Athletic Training Program. As and we recorded today, they did win their Duke's Mayo Bowl game. So They did. They did. Big, yep. big deal. As of yeah. December 30th. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so we uh, did my undergrad at UW-Madison uh, in athletic training. And then I went on. I was a grad assistant athletic trainer at Boston University for a year. And then I entered a doctoral program in anatomy and neurobiology uh, at the Boston University School of Medicine. And I uh, did my research at the CTE Center um, studying chronic mm -hmm. traumatic encephalopathy and the long-term uh, consequences of hitting your head a lot in particular. And my interest was uh, really in that what happens when we hit our head a lot as a kid. Right. New sports. Yeah. Um, and I, I studied there with um, Dr. Robert Stern uh, who's done a lot of work on CTE and others, um, and McKee and, and others there. So it was a really awesome opportunity uh, to learn from them and uh, study this really interesting topic. Right. Uh, yeah. And now I'm at 
uh, UW-Madison. I am continuing to collaborate with BU. I uh, collaborate with Dr. Dave Bell in uh, the Wisconsin Injury and Sport Lab. Um, we actually just had another paper come out today, which is great. And, yeah, thank you. Um, looking at lower extremity injuries following concussions. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I also teach anatomy there. That's my, my main thing there is I, I teach anatomy for all undergrads. Yeah. It's still in the old school, like med sci building, like the lab. No, no, we actually, um, when I took it over, we switched from the medical school to kinesiology. So um, I'm in the department of kinesiology. Um, It it is, the lab is actually now in uh, MSC. It's just below the old lab. Okay. Um, So yeah, it's a little bit different setup now, but uh, yeah, it's great. That was that anatomy lab was my, one of my favorite classes and that, old school like cadaver room was just something right out of a movie it felt like oh yeah oh yeah it's a great experience um you know there's nothing like being able to feel the tissue and learn from the tissue and do a lockman's on a knee and see watch the acl do its job for example it's great absolutely um so I mentioned just on the intro, you, you wrote a book, um, which from everybody I've ever listened to that's written a book um, is its own unique undertaking. Um, mm-hmm. What inspired you to write the book? And, you know, just, I guess, how did all that process go? Yeah, you know, I, I'm really interested in this topic of, of protecting the brain in youth sports. And I felt like there were pieces missing from that conversation. And I felt like there were such extremes in that conversation. So, uh, you know, it was either don't play contact sports until you're at least 18 or contact sports are fine. You know, there's, we don't know everything, so we know nothing. Uh, You know, and, and I really wanted to fill in that middle gap of what do we actually know? How does this fit with, you know, the safety in youth sports? Um, what can we do to make these sports safer in the future? Um, I also wanted to kind of squash some of the myths that are out there sure. uh, re- regarding brain safety in new sports. And uh, yeah, so I started writing the book actually several years ago. And all <laughs> uh, <laughs> right from what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. And I had no idea what I was doing. How do you, how do you even get a book published? I went to a conference last year at... Um, UW uh, writing conference and met a book coach there who kind of helped me put a proposal together and figure out the system and how it all works. And, um, and now eventually we've got their um, publisher and, and it's going to exist in the world. I have a cover and it's That's in the awesome. process. So, yeah. um, just for any, everybody listening, when does that come out? So it's coming out this summer. Okay. Um, right now it's set for July, okay. uh, early July. Um, I don't know that it'll actually officially be early July. Uh, the pandemic has caused some delays with the publisher. So sure. uh, for right now, July is the plan. Awesome. Yeah, and it's called uh, The Brain on You Sports, The Science, The Myths, and The Future. I, I know I'm looking forward to that because it's always good to... I think how you summed it up with that subtitle is perfect because I think that's what... It's such an impactful thing and the information's just right there for you, um, which is fantastic. Thank you. Um, 
So I have this one, you know, without giving too much away from the book and, you know, we were talking off air about some potential other um, media coming out from you, hopefully in the future. Um, what do you see as like one of the biggest misconceptions with youth and, and repetitive brain trauma? Yeah. So there are, there are a few. One is that it's all about concussions. I think that we hear that across the board, across all mm -hmm. levels that, you know, we need to prevent concussions and we do, that's absolutely important. And concussions are serious injuries that really you know, need to be managed correctly and, um, and taken seriously. But we also need to be concerned about those repetitive impacts that don't cause symptoms. There's growing uh, literature really even over the past I'd say maybe eight years or so, the literature has just, you know, grown immensely on, you know, what's happening in the brain, even when we don't have a concussion, there's lots of evidence to show uh, from a variety of different neuroimaging techniques from uh, even somewhat cognitive um, differences. And, but we're really seeing that there are changes in the brains in the brain happening, even when we don't have a concussion. Uh, many of these studies look, from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. And we can see differences in athletes who never had any symptoms. Sure. So I think it's really important to understand that, especially over time, those hits add up and they matter. Um, there's also evidence to suggest that long-term consequences can happen. And the more hits that you have, the more likely you are to have those long-term consequences. Many people think of CTE with that, and that's a concern, but even just separate from CTE, um, more difficulties with potentially um, behavioral issues, mm -hmm. mood issues, cognitive issues that uh, some athletes are showing later in life. Um, and that has been correlated to the number of hits that we estimate they had over time. So that's a big misconception. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that it's a huge misconception that we have to hit when we're young. You know, there's no evidence that you have to hit uh, whether it's tackling or checking or heading the soccer ball, sure. there's no evidence that that makes you uh, better or more likely to be a star later in life. Yep. I have a whole section in my book of uh, NFL stars and other uh, stars in other sports who were really successful and didn't play until at least high school. Right. Not later. Yep. Um, nobody would say Tom Brady would be better if he had played when he was, you know, eight, <laughs> but he didn't start tackle football until he was, um, in ninth grade. So I think that's a big misconception. Um, there's no evidence that hitting younger makes you safer when you start older. There's some um, ideas out there that if you don't hit when you're young, you won't learn that technique and then you'll be more likely to be injured when you're older. There's no evidence at all to suggest that. Okay. Um, and actually the evidence shows the opposite from what, what is there. Um, so you know, you don't have to hit young. I'm all for sports. Kids should have every opportunity to play sports, but we just can protect our hit, our, our brain when we're young. So I know that was another point you had in here. And it was also a question I had. Um, I've gone back and forth on this um, in terms of like, what is the a potential, you know, in quotes, proper age. Um, I've had a boss who had high school or had, a bunch of boys. Um, he actually works collegiate football and that's his job, but was not going to allow his kids to play 
football until at least high school. And his rationale is kind of echoing to a degree. What you said is, you know, other than quarterback, like there aren't that many specific, like quote unquote skill. Yes. We call them skill positions, but like there's skills you can learn without having to be tackled to the ground um, in his purview. And if they really wanted to play quarterback, they could play baseball and learn how, you know, throwing mechanics there. So he was pushing, you know, that, that would be the earliest they would start would be in high school Um, and just discussions with other colleagues, you know, there wasn't overwhelming evidence to say that you couldn't start early, you know, in terms of having contact and so on and so forth. So um, you, you answered my question and the thing saying it was totally possible to answer. So I'm going to have you, I'm going to hold you to that from what you've seen, because you are so far into this research, what would your general recommendation be for somebody looking to play contact sports, not just to pick on football? Yeah, I think, you know, I think playing a non-contact version of the sport until high school (laughs) is the way I would, I would recommend it. And there are a lot of reasons why Um, one, you know, right now a big topic is chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. And a paper recently came out looking at the number of years that former athletes, not just NFL players, but former football players uh, of multiple age range mm-hmm. uh, or level range, um, that the number of years that they played uh, and going on to get the disease or not have the disease. And if you play uh, four years or less, essentially, your odds of going on to get CTE were 10 times less than somebody who played, you know, uh, I think it was 10 years or more. Okay. So just playing, you know, that four years of high school and having those tackles with, you know, the four years of high school, it's a lot less uh, trauma on the brain. And especially now the way more state organizations uh, have limited contact in practice mm-hmm. about that compared to even 10 years ago, sure. or less. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the total cumulative number of hits that you've had over you know, your, your playing career will be substantially lower. So just playing those four years of high school, because most, most athletes aren't going on to play in college. Um, but even if you do, then you play four years of college, that's eight years of contact. Not, you know, if you start at age eight, you know, that's another, what, six years or so. So I think waiting on that sense is really important. So your, your risk of long-term problems is lower. Also, though, the brain is so rapidly developing when we're young and it doesn't stop when high school stops, right? We still have brain development happening there. But some of the really foundational processes that are happening in the brain are happening in that eight to 12 or, you know, those those years leading up to high school. So protecting the brain then is really important. There's some evidence to suggest uh, some of the research we've done uh, that would suggest that we could be disrupting some of that process. Mm-hmm. We're hitting our heads repeatedly. So that's another reason that we really need to protect the brain when we're younger. You can learn, you know, how to throw a football. You can learn about the game. You can learn about it playing flag. Um, tackle bar is a really interesting new um, option. I don't know if you've heard of that, but mm-hmm. basically there are uh, these bars that are, I think, essentially Velcro to the back, okay. um, to the player's back, and then you can kind of reach around so you get the idea of wrapping to tackle, but you pull the bars off instead of yep. taking the athlete to the ground. I think I might've seen something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some other forms that are growing that can teach a lot about the game 
And the only difference is the play doesn't end with the tackle. Sure. So you can still even have some blocking involved starting from an upright stance. Um, so I think that, you know, it's not just football, you know, hockey doesn't allow checking now before age 13. And there's some push to push that even to age 15. Sure. Um, soccer heading is limited till age or well banned before age 11, limited to age 13. So other sports have taken that primary source of contact out and it, it hasn't hurt their sport at all. In right. fact, hockey has grown immensely uh, after that. So, um, you know, I think they've shown that it can be done and just waiting until at least high school to expose the brain to all of that is really important. I just thought of a question that I didn't put in there, but um, kind of go over it um, equipment wise, um, which I figure you would be all for and answering, you know, I think generally everybody, especially in the relative medical field feels that there, you know, nothing is a concussion prevention, you know, helmet or anything like that. There's nothing that's going to prevent that. Um, there's obviously new technologies that are coming out different, a completely different look at the helmet is coming. Um, but going kind of to the youth sport, you know, have you seen anything like obviously well fitting equipment is going to be better than not well fitting equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, at least that would seemingly make sense. And is there anything out there showing that that is, you know, a potential contributor or magnifier in the, you know, the repetitive, you know, when you've got a nine-year-old running around and their helmet can literally turn around on their head because it's just too big for them. Yeah. I, fit is really important. And actually until recently, uh, they're really, and, and even still, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot out there that really regulates youth helmets. Mm -hmm. uh, they were under the same testing protocols as the adult helmets, even okay. though um, the way in which children tend to get that concussion or, or feel those impacts tends to be different, far more impacts to the ground yep. compared to even, you know, head to head with each other. So uh, there, there really hasn't been great regulation for youth helmets compared to adult helmets. And I think we have this perception that, oh, we'll just make them smaller and it'll be the same. And it's right. not really the case. Um, Virginia Tech has um, ratings for helmets for a variety of different sports. Yep. So uh, that's a great, uh, you can just Google Virginia Tech helmet ratings and that's a great um, resource. But what you find is with football, they're basically all rated around the same. No particular helmet or maybe just one or two are less. So when parents go out and they're like, well, I'm going to spend a thousand dollars on this great helmet. Well, it's really doesn't perform any better than the one that costs $200. Sure. I think that's a big thing. You know, spending a lot of money to get the top of the line isn't really getting you more protection with hockey. There are several helmets that are ranked pretty poorly. So I think that's worth looking into and making sure that you're getting a better ranking helmet, but with football for the most part, the difference is very small. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't, uh, I haven't dug deep into that since the vices one has come out mm -hmm. where it's actually like a crumple zone. I think it's a very unique aspect. And I know even shut and Rydell have done similar ish things where there's the cutouts or, you know, there's like actual breaks strategically in the plastic to help the deformation, you know, of, of it. But yeah, yeah I don't know if it's ultimately going to make a big, 
make the difference people hope it would, I guess. Yeah, and it might help a little bit, especially sure. with some of those concussive impacts. But uh, and there's a lot of research going into the two different methods. I've seen a lot out there uh, of different ways of dissipating that force, and especially things going into ro uh, rotational forces mm -hmm. because those rotational forces are even worse for the brain. Um, the anatomy inside the skull just makes the brain move differently and makes the axons stretch differently. So it, um, you know, the rotational forces are tough, but you don't have to hit your head to get a concussion, right? So it's only helpful to a certain degree. Um, every time that, you know, you are hit and your head to the body and the head is whipping around, you know, that's putting stress on the brain, whether it results in symptoms or not. Sure. Uh, so the helmet is only a piece of the puzzle and it does a great job of preventing skull fractures. Not, you know, it really can't prevent concussions. Maybe it'll help a little bit with some, but it's, you know, the technology is not going to be that thing that saves everything here. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. You know, just as you see more and more of the technology and some of the custom fit padding on the inside and, you know, just trying to keep the head from, having more bounce, but ultimately, like you said, if your helmet's not hitting the ground or not getting directly contacted by another helmet and it's, there's no, just not much you can do for the inside of it. And, um, other than avoid mm -hmm. the hit. Yeah. Hmm. I have a, a whole chapter on that in the book too. And, and some of the other things like, um, uh, neck strengthening is one that I think is, it's interesting. It's starting. It, I think there's some evidence to show that neck strengthening is helpful sure. to a degree, but it's only helpful if you're really braced and prepared for the hit. Right. So, you know, it's not, that's also not going to prevent everything. It could be helpful to some degree. Yep. There was an interesting paper that just came out looking at um, white matter in the brains, the pathways in the brain and uh, neck strength in soccer players. So regardless of concussion, just looking over, you know, course of the season yep. and there was better integrity in those with higher neck strength. So um, it may be helpful for some of those smaller hits too, or those non-concussive hits over time. Right. But it's another thing that's not going to solve all of the problems. Um, there's no, uh, you know, magic pill here or uh, one thing that's going to solve it. The only way to really prevent it is to just not hit your head or not, you know, have those impacts. Right. And you're not going to prevent everything. That's never going to happen. For sure. Right. In sports, there's going to be collisions, even in flag football or, you know, non-contact things, but um, preventing those intentional repetitive ones can make a big difference. Another on the spot question, you know, again, cause you're so deep into it and obviously with your workout at Boston, uh, the body of evidence around all of this is going to continue to grow. Like I don't, I don't, Mm -hmm. why it would ever stop um or slow down uh i don't know that anything would ever completely change but do you see as this evidence grows like you gave the really nice range of you know under four years is 10 times less likely for potential you know as compared to playing for over 10 years do you potentially see bigger changes on top of what you've already said based on the research that's coming out where maybe, you know, it's not starting till junior year or do the rules continue to evolve and change? You know, there's been a lot that has been put into place, even at the highest levels, um, you know, and you're still not going to prevent everything as you've alluded to, but do you see more changes coming? 
Like it wouldn't surprise me if football as we know it is completely different by the time in 20 years. Yeah, I think, I think there's potential for that. I think it may take a little bit longer. Uh, I think that one of the difficult things about this area is right now we can't diagnose CTE during life. Sure. Uh, we can only see it post-mortem. There's great research going into imaging techniques, uh, looking at the tau, the protein that's uh, yep. misfolded in, in, in the brain. And that's showing a lot of promise. And I think we will be there within the 10 to 20 years mark. Um, science is slow. Yeah. We're learning more and more this year. Yeah. But um, I, you know, I think that the fact that we can't see it now and we can't know for sure who has it, if we could scan all current and former football players right now and actually see what was in the brain, I think that would leave a lot of people like, oh, wow, okay, this is more than we thought. Um, and I think that would make bigger changes in a more uh, immediate time frame, but we can't. So I do think that it, it will change a lot. And I think that it's going to be continuing towards fewer and fewer and fewer hits. But I think we have such a culture that likes those hits that it, it's getting harder for people to watch. But I think that we'd have to really have a bigger culture shift to see a bigger change right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially with the, the youth level, the only way to definitively say that we're disrupting development or we're, um, you know, we can't know what somebody was supposed to be like, right? So that's yep. a, a hard thing. Um, but the closest we could get would be that, you know, study where we're looking at kids now, ideally we'd have them in a more um, similar environment and we'd follow them for 50 years. Well, we don't have that much time, right? right, kids right. Now. So I do think that we're going to start to see more and more changes and more of a shift away from those impacts. I would love to see some of the legislation go through that says, no, and this is another thing that I hate. It's not banning football. It's just banning tackling below a certain age. We can play football. We just don't end it with a tackle. Sure. Um, and, and seeing that shift where we get, you know, remove tackling at least before, you know, seventh grade, if not before, um, you know, high school. Um, and, and that continued move towards really limited hitting in practice. The NFL barely hits at all in practice right now. Right. You know, so um, and I think we're going to see that continue in that direction. We definitely could see some bigger changes. I just, I don't know. I hesitate because that cultural changes is, is such a hard thing. Yeah. And I know I cringe sometimes when I hear announcers, you know, just it's still referring to the, Oh, you know, bell rung or everything, or, you know, Oh, yeah. yeah. Or even when they're talking about like, oh, it's not targeting, and you know that that's been its own hot topic. Which it's just kind of like, how did you not see both? You know, even if we're not calling a penalty, like their heads just collided. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and you're like, oh, how could he avoid that? And and some of those, I, I just sit there and it's just like, yeah, we're still caught in the entertainment value of that. Not holy crap, what could be going on with this twenty year old? You know, when you're talking about college football and what that could potentially do to him. Um, yeah. And that is, that's literally ingrained in our brains. There's this awesome study out of uh, Auburn that showed different groups of people, violent images. Some were more violent sure. football images and yeah. the football images and some were um, just other violent images and football fans 
saw those differently, whereas non-football fans thought they were both violent, but parts of the brain in the football fans that are involved in empathy and, um, you know, that would interpret that as violence didn't light up. So we just were trained, our brain is trained to think that that's not uh, a violent thing or that it's not necessarily hurting somebody. And I don't know the role that the helmet plays in that. If you can't see their face, you know, it's maybe less of a thing, but Hmm. I think that's a big, a big part of it. Um, I think it's going to take a lot longer to see more drastic changes because that culture aspect. I can understand that. (laughs) Um, I'd like to see more. Yeah. Yeah. What roles do you see athletic trainers playing in all of this? Not only in concussion, obviously that's a big um, thing, you know, with being on the sideline and now even like the eye in the sky options that they're putting out there, but, you know, in youth concussion and just like limiting these sub concussive impacts as much as they can. Yeah. I think athletic trainers play a huge role in, in multiple aspects of this, you know, obviously in the diagnosis, I think we're starting to see more athletic trainers at youth events which is awesome. Um, we really need that because so many times you just have coaches or parents and, um, you know, it can be hard for anybody to know if an eight-year-old has a concussion or you know, sure. they forgot the play because they're eight or if they forgot the play because there's something else going on. Or they're uh, but eight years I, old and they're a little goofy and it's really hard to have a baseline on that. Right. Exactly. But especially the more athletic trainers can be involved in those programs regularly, just like we are at the other levels and get to know the athletes. I think that's important. And the ability to educate at those levels, really talk to the kids and say, this is, you know, if you feel any of these things, just let me know or talk to the parents and and give them an idea of how to gauge um, some of those more subtle symptoms that kids might show, you know, kids might not come up to you and say, I feel foggy and I have, you know, altered, um, you know, I have confusion or things like that, but the parent might notice that their mood is a little off or they're not sleeping Mm -hmm. well, or some of those more subtle signs and athletic trainers are right there, you know, in a position to educate and uh, also to help manage those injuries. So that's huge. And I think also the relationship between athletic trainers and the coaches and giving that information of why it's so important that we just maybe don't do five tackle drills today. Let's bring that back. Or, you know, they've been, they've been hitting a lot. Let's, you know, let's calm that down for a little bit. Um, I think the AT plays a huge role in in building that relationship with the coach and really encouraging the coach to limit those impacts and not only for the brain, but to keep them healthy in, in general, because a kid who's hurt, you know, pretty badly playing, at age eight might not keep playing. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it might hurt their physical activity over a lifetime, right? You know, that has big implications. So uh, I think the athletic trainer is so important in this, um, in this area. Perfect. Anything else you want to hit on now before we jump into the AT chat questions that we didn't get to? Yeah. Um, I think, um, let me say this. So, you know, really, I think that brain development piece is really an important thing that's often overlooked in concussion conversation in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were really interested in looking at brain development and, and those impacts happening in that eight to 12 range, because that's when a lot of kids start playing youth football. And we saw differences uh, 
in the brain of former NFL players who uh, hit their head a lot during that age range. And, um, you know, that was compared to those who started a little bit later before or at age 12 or older. Uh, and we really, I think in, in concussions need to think about the actual age that these, these injuries are happening, both concussions and these repetitive hits. Um, you know, we may not see the effects of those concussions when we're young until we're in our twenties, for example, you know, if somebody is, you know, bad at planning an organization or, um, maybe has some mood disturbances when they're in their twenties, we never think to look back at that concussion that happened when they were eight. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's someplace that we really need to, to go and something we really need to start thinking about more is, you know, an eight-year-old is not a 12-year-old is not, you know, a 16-year-old with the brain. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the research kind of groups all of them together. So I think that's a really important thing that we need to start thinking about with is, you know, let's just protect that brain when we're young, because there's so much happening and, and um, what happens when in development is really an important thing. That is a very powerful piece of advice. And yeah, I'm almost excited to some degree that I have a little girl because I probably don't have to worry about it quite as much as they're growing up. So true. true. And you know, as, as an athletic trainer, it, this makes sense, right? That we could be disrupting some of that, um, some of that process in the brain, that development process. If we talk about like a Salter Harris fracture, mm-hmm. we're concerned about disrupting the growth plate, um, you know, with the fracture and potentially closing that growth plate early. That's altering that development yep. leading to a leg length discrepancy. Same fracture that happens mid shaft of, of a bone could actually make that bone longer because those osteoblasts are building bone. Sure. It, you know, they go into overdrive. So, uh, you know, the lung development can be disrupted by smoking. Sure. Uh, emotional trauma changes the brain. So it's not like a completely out there thought. It's just, right. you know, we, I don't know why we would think that hitting our head a lot as a kid would be different than any of these other things. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. With that, AT chat questions. Yeah, let's do it. Where do you see athletic training going in five to 10 years? If you could set that example. Yeah, I would love to see the profession really branch out more. And I think it's already heading in that direction. You know, we hopefully with this master's degree program that will lend even more credibility, even though we know we're credible Mm -hmm. in our abilities, uh, you know, within healthcare fields as a whole, um, you know, that will, benefit us. And I'd love to see athletic training branch out. We have, you know, different um, residencies that are starting with like neuro residencies. I'd love to see athletic trainers in the ER and urgent care settings where we can do a better job in healthcare as a whole of using people's strengths and using different, the strengths of different fields. And I'd love to see ATs being utilized more in places where they could take some of that burden off of other providers who maybe don't specialize in musculoskeletal or concussion, things like that. Um, I think that would be a great uh, place for the profession to grow. And I do think it'll get there. And I think it's already kind of starting um, with more ETs in the clinical setting. I like that. What advice would you go back and give yourself as a young athletic trainer? And if you could set when that, when you would give that advice, that'd be great. 
for me, I think right at the beginning from like my eval classes, sure. learn your anatomy. I, yes. the way our program helped or it was set up, I, I didn't actually learn my anatomy or have my anatomy courses until the second semester. Okay. Uh, just the way things fell sure. uh, with the university. And it really didn't click until I learned my anatomy. I remember seeing uh, my professor open up, you know, the knee, reflect the patella and do a Lockman's on the cadaver. And it, I had learned how to do a Lockman's months earlier and didn't understand what I was doing. And, uh, you know, that's something when I teach now, I really emphasize that your whole musculoskeletal exam is anatomy. Your rehab is anatomy. So really learning your anatomy, I think is so important to understanding why you're doing what you're doing in all aspects, you know, from the eval to the rehab. So I wish I would, that would have clicked for me earlier. Couldn't agree more. Uh, absolutely. What has been the most influential resource you have found in your career? Oh, this, this is a tough question. I think for <laughs> me, I, I'm just thinking about what I do now, um, learning how to use the literature and, and the literature as a whole. So now, you know, anything that pops up, I'm on PubMed and I'm using the literature to, mm-hmm. to inform everything I'm doing. So I think for me that PubMed is a resource and the Journal of Athletic Training um, and other journals that, you know, there's evidence out there for almost anything. And if there's not, there, that's important to take in, into account too. Sure. And um, yeah, I think we're seeing that more in the pandemic too, that ability to read a research article and to know how to search and find that. I, I'm on PubMed all the time trying to find things uh, to inform both practice and advice. Absolutely. So, yeah. I think that honestly might be the first time somebody has said PubMed. I'll have to go really? back. And, yeah, which is great. Yeah, no, it's perfect. It's something that informs everything for me now. So yeah, no. Um, if you could go and change or eliminate one thing, could be a modality, a common practice, a mindset, or whatever you choose in in the field of athletic training, what would it be? I think a big thing for me would be uh, making all at least universities. Um, and colleges and ideally professional level too, uh, all a medical model and not an athletic department model. That's a big thing. I've done a little bit of research on that with the concussion front and the pressures that clinicians feel when their boss is an AD. Sure. Uh, So I I think that's a really big thing that I would change is our boss should be a medical provider because we are medical providers. We're healthcare providers and we should be able to act in the best interest of our patients no matter what, without the pressure of potentially losing our job or, you know, issues with coaches, things like that. So uh, I think that's a big change that I would make. Whole other thing, but we'll, I want to chat with you about that at some point too. Mm-hmm. Um, last question. Uh, what does being an athletic trainer mean to you? It means helping athletes enjoy all the experience that they want, your experiences they want to experience, play the sports that they love in the safest and healthiest way. I think sometimes we get a bad rap for, you know, we're trying to hold people out. Like, and that's not it. You know, we, we want athletes to play, but we just want them to do it safely. And I think it's awesome to be able to, you know, sometimes we have to hold them out, but I think it's awesome to be able to help athletes participate in the best way possible in the safest way possible. Well said. Um, just in closing, if people wanted to connect with you or reach out uh, with a question, where would they be 
best able to find you or connect? Yeah, uh, I'm at Julie Stam PhD. Uh, that's Stam with two M's. Uh, Julie Stam PhD on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Uh, so I'm happy there to help there. Uh, also, my website is juliestam.com. So you can find me there too. Awesome. We will get all those linked up um, on your webpage and go from there. Great. Well, thank you for being a part of it. This was awesome. Um, we'll have to do a round two around some more of this stuff just because it's an endlessly fascinating topic and one that's constantly evolving, but I appreciate you taking the time um, and we'll be in touch soon. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me.